The worst thing we ever did was put God in the sky. Out of reach, pulling the divinity from the leaf, sifting out the holy from our bones, insisting God isn't bursting dazzlement, stripping the sacred from everywhere to put in a cloud man elsewhere, prying closeness from your heart. The worst thing we ever did was take the dance and the song out of prayer, made it sit up straight and cross its legs, removed it of rejoicing, wiped clean its hip sway, its questions, its ecstatic yowl, its tears. The worst thing we ever did is pretend God isn't the easiest thing in this universe, available to every soul in every breath. few years ago, before I ever worked at the Meeting House, I was working on my master's degree in an online program, distance education. And everyone in my program lived all over the world, and we only ever got to see each other in person for one week each year, when we'd all gather together in one city in North America, and we'd spend the week together uh, listening to lectures, learning together, um, hearing from thought leaders and community leaders in that city, exploring the city, and then also, you know, just hanging out, having drinks, eating chicken wings and staying up really late together. It was kind of like summer camp for adults and we looked forward to it every year. Well, one year our in-person gathering was in Toronto. And so we got there and our program director always liked to keep the itinerary for that week completely secret. Um, gave us as little information as possible. I think partly because he thought it would be fun if we didn't know what was coming and partly because he didn't want to hear a bunch of uh, master's students complaining in advance about the things that he'd planned out. And so um, we got the itinerary for the week and one night it said that we had tickets to see a performance by someone who had made a significant contribution to popular culture. And this sparked my curiosity, it sparked our curiosity as a class, and so we started googling to see who was going to be in downtown Toronto on that night that we might have tickets to go see. And personally, I was super excited to discover that Radiohead was scheduled to be playing at Scotiabank Arena uh, that very night. And I could not, I, I love Radiohead. I've never got to see them in concert yet. So this was an exciting possibility. And I could not think of a few, few other people who have contributed uh, as much to culture as Radiohead. And so I was like, hey, this is cool. I'm gonna see my first Radiohead concert. Awesome. Um, I, I was, of course, disappointed when we got the GPS coordinates of where we needed to head that day. And we were not heading to Scotiabank Arena, but we were heading to a different location, uh, not to see Radiohead perform, but to hear a lecture by none other than Jordan B. Peterson. And there was a very mixed reaction to that, as there is with pretty much all things Jordan Peterson. But that is how I ended up sitting in the very, very back row of a large lecture hall auditorium space, listening to a talk by Jordan Peterson about his book, 12 Rules for Life. 
And I'm not going to get into the whole Jordan Peterson conversation here. That's not really what I, what I want to talk about. But what I do want to talk about is something that Jordan Peterson said in the talk that has stuck with me to this day. I mean, he hit his usual themes about um, suffering in the world and how life is hard and how there are simple things that we can do, like telling the truth and taking responsibility that help reduce suffering in ourselves and in others. It was sort of classic Peterson stuff. But he closed his talk with a metaphor that he felt um, sort of summarized everything he was talking about that day and has summarized much of the work that he, that he does and, and sort of his philosophy of life. And he's, he said that um, he used the image of St. Joseph's Oratory uh, in Montreal. And St. Joseph's Oratory is the cathedral at the very top of Mount Royal. So you can see it from pretty much anywhere in the city. It's way up on this hill. And there are all these stairs that you have to climb to get up to St. Joseph's. And stair after stair after stair, it, it, it's quite something. A beautiful building. But in, in Jordan Peterson's mind, this was a great metaphor for what life is like. In his mind, life is like uh, making our way up this incredibly huge staircase, carrying the heavy burdens that we have in life, trying to reach the heavenly city. And of course, Peterson leaves heavenly city sort of ambiguous, so you can kind of put whatever it is that you want there. It could be heaven, it could be God, it could be meaning, could be transcendence, could be the universe, could be order. Um, whatever it is that we are looking towards, this thing beyond ourselves, it's at the top of the stairs. And we have to scratch and crawl and climb and make our way through the pain and difficulty of life to get to the top of those stairs, to get to where heaven is, the divine is, where God is. And now, this is actually a pretty common way to think about how life is. None of this is terribly new um, with Jordan Peterson. And, you know, I mean, after all, with Jordan Peterson's thoughts, I mean, what is, you know, the Ten Commandments, if not, you know, sort of the original Ten Rules for Life, right? Um, but for most of human history, we have thought about God or the divine um, in this sort of way, right? That it is at the top of the hill, that God is in the sky, and that we as human beings have to work to get to where God is. And so in ancient cultures, they would often give divine properties to the sun, the moon, and the stars that were in the sky. There's an ancient story in the Bible about um, people who got together and they wanted to get to where God was. And they believed God was in the sky. And so they built an actual physical tower that they believed would help them get closer to God. And that project fell apart when there, there were some translation issues um, and, and some infighting that happened because of that. But this, this idea of wanting to get to where God is and God being out there somewhere, up there somewhere, uh, is, is pretty common. And as human beings and the human thought has adapted over time, moved away from trying to get physically to where God is, to sort of metaphorically getting where God is. And in... With that sort of thinking, um, religion, the rules and things that we do um, you know, to help us live good lives are, are, becomes the stairway to heaven in a way. Um, so things like uh, right beliefs, disciplines, sacrifices, rituals, sacraments, orthodoxy, prayer, commandments, laws, traditions, uh, rites, all these things 
kind of make up the stairway. They, they guide us and help us move from where we are down here to where God is up there. And all of those things can be good and helpful. But I think they can be good and helpful when they're not the stairway to get from where we are to where God is. But when they become the thing that helps us to be more aware of God. So religious practices or the things that we do that help us be good people or understand the world or whatever it is, how we think about it. Um, those things are only helpful in so much as they make us aware of the divine, the other, the transcendent, uh, the heavenly. And they become a bit of a problem when they become the only pathway to get there that we must take. Because the problem with religion making up the staircase between us and God is that if we have to do all the right things to get up that staircase to get where God is, then we are only ever one false step, one mistake, one um, slip up from tumbling down the stairs and ending up at the bottom no closer to God than when we began. And that can be very shame-inducing. That can create a lot of fear in us um, that if people find out about our mistakes, if we make mistakes, then we're going we're gonna to miss out and we're going to fall off the path and we may never recover. And that's a pretty, that's a pretty difficult way to live. I, I spent many years of my life living that way. And, but yet, I think a lot of us feel like, well, there isn't another alternative. How else am I supposed to get from where I am to where God is, up there, out there? The worst thing we ever did was put God in the sky. So, and this is why I think the story of Jesus is so compelling and also really kind of hard for us to believe when we really think about it. In John 1, 14, um, th this verse sort of completely reframes the way that we think about how we relate to God. Because instead of God being up the top of the hill or at the, you know, up in the sky, um, John 1, 14 says that God, the Word, Jesus, um, became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. God does not wait for us to come to him. God comes to us and moves into the neighborhood. And, you know, it just it, if you really think about it, it's this incredible concept. I mean, it, the, the concept is so incredible that it, it's really kind of hard to believe when we think about it too much. Because if there's a divine force, energy, creator, person that is behind all of existence then the thought of that person being whatever you want to think about it as is so huge that we can't even really get our minds around it. And then to think about it coming down to a person, a baby, is, is kind of incredible. I mean, so we're a few weeks out from Christmas, and I think we all know the Christmas story really well. We can talk about Joseph and Mary and angels and the manger and shepherds and wise men and all the parts of the Christmas story. And we're so familiar with it that we can just kind of hear it and take part in it and not really let it think, sink in how wild that story is. How wild the concept that God could be reduced down to a baby that in a moment, God can become this person that is puking and crying and learning how to walk. That one day God can literally become somebody's neighbor who lives next door to someone. It's 
you know, I mean, I mean, it's hard enough to think about God, which is a concept that we all struggle with understanding, becoming like that. I mean, and moving into our neighborhood. We can't even really think about it when it's a human celebrity that might move into our neighborhood. I mean, imagine for a second if Jeff Bezos was going to move into your neighborhood. CEO entrepreneur, born in 1964, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Bezos. CEO entrepreneur, born in 1964, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Bezos. Now, did I pick Jeff Bezos as the celebrity example just so I could play that clip? Yes, yes I did. But really, I mean, think about it. Jeff Bezos, one of the richest people in the world. Could you imagine just going out to shovel your driveway and there's Jeff Bezos um, just right next door? Or you're having a barbecue with some friends and Jeff Bezos pops his head over the fence and just wants to have a chit chat with you. Like, we, we can't fathom that because that's not how our reality works. I mean, this is the house that Jeff Bezos lives in. You are an, probably an Amazon Prime member. And your Amazon Prime membership does not get you within, you know, a mile of this house, much less inside of it, much less in a face-to-face -face conversation with Jeff Bezos. A lot of our ideas about God are actually uh, taken from our ideas about how we relate to rich, powerful people in our world. You know, we believe that God is distant and we have to get to him and is not always accessible because the rich, powerful people in our world live behind gates at the top of the hill, in the castle, in the turret, in the place it's hard to get to, and there's guards, and there's all these, and they have moats, and all these things that we have, and security, and all of that, that, that make them inaccessible to ordinary, everyday people. And so we take all those ideas that we have about the rich and powerful people in our world, and we apply them to God and say, God must be like that, and so God must be at the, at the top of the hill or in the sky, and God must be difficult for us to get to. And so we struggle with this idea of God moving into our neighborhood, moving into where we are, because that's not how we relate to the powerful people in our lives at all. And so this is one of the ways in which Jesus sort of upends our thinking, our human thinking about what God is like, because Jesus does not come and live in a gated community. Jesus doesn't even live in a good neighborhood. Jesus is one of the criticisms of Jesus in his day is that his parents, uh, he had blue-collar parents, his father was a carpenter, and Jesus' hometown, Nazareth, was so insignificant they, that people argued that nobody special, Jesus could not be a special, he could not be divine, because nothing and no one of interest or um, of repute ever came from Jesus' hometown. It was just a nowhere place that where nothing ever happened and no one important ever came from there. It was just a regular, regular town. And not only did Jesus only you know, just live in an ordinary place, Jesus spent most of his time with ordinary people. There's a song from 1995 by Joan Osborne called One of Us, in which she imagines what it would be like for God to be one of us. And you know the lyrics are, what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. And I remember when that song came out, I was part of a pretty fundamentalist uh, Christian church community at the time. And I knew a lot of people and, and read a fair bit about how that song offended a lot of Christians um, because they thought it was a little irreverent that to imagine God just being a regular person riding the bus. 
and in particular the idea that God was a slob in some way, uh, felt irreligious and heretical even. Which is interesting, right? Because if you look at the way that Jesus is described and talked about by his contemporaries in uh, the biographies of Jesus, the Gospels in the Bible, you, you actually hear pretty similar language to that in terms of how Jesus is described. Um, you know, often Jesus is referred to as a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Um, the King James Version for uh, translation for drunk is wine-bibber, which is a word that's kind of awesome, actually. Like wine-bibber perfectly sort of straddles the line between that could be an insult, but also feels like it kind of could be a, like a compliment. Like you're not sure if wine beaver is something that you never want to be or like if wine beaver is kind of like, yeah, th that, that feels kind of cool. Like, like it's just one of those words that we should probably bring back a little bit more. Like we should, I, I, would, I would start using wine beaver in my vocabulary. But back then it was definitely an insult. You know, this idea that Jesus spent so much time with regular people um, and even, you know, when I say regular people, including the people, marginalized people, the people that the rest of society looks down on, that he was given the same reputation as the rest of them. And so he spent a lot of time with lepers and with adulterers and with tax collectors and with all these different types of people, Samaritans, um, people that everyone else looked down on. And Jesus, that was who Jesus had meals with and, and spent his time with. He he was very friendly with ordinary people. He did not spend all of his time hanging out with the elites um, or the powerful people. And the powerful people, they used this against him. They thought that there was no way that Jesus could be God, could be anybody important, because he didn't spend all of his time hanging out with important people like them. Um, again, their concept of God was that God was like Jeff Bezos in this gated community at the top of the hill and difficult to get to. And yet, so if there was no way Jesus could be like God because he was just spending all his time with all these people and didn't he know what they were really like, that they had not worked the steps. They were not following the rules. They were not doing all the religious things that were going to help them get to, get to God. And so there was no way that God could be with them because they hadn't earned it in any way. But this is what Jesus is like. I mean, and we, we realize that when Jesus is born in a manger, that this is not like a one-off. He's born in a feeding trough for animals in this tiny town. And that's not a one-off in Jesus' life. That actually is the template for the rest of his life, that he is going to spend it in solidarity with the ordinary and marginalized and overlooked people of the world. And so, again, to the religious elites of Jesus' day, this is, this is scandalous. God could not possibly be like this. But if we believe for a moment, if we do the thought exercise and say, okay, if Jesus shows us what God is really like, then we can go back and we can read the rest of the story and begin to see the, that maybe Jesus is not um, wrong about what God is like. Maybe our understanding of what God is like has been wrong all along. And that when we read the story, we see like, oh, no, actually God is not always up in the sky, but actually God is with the ordinary people in the ordinary places. And God is not waiting for us to climb the stairs to get to him, but is actually coming down the stairs to be with us. So think about the very first story in the Bible, about Adam and Eve 
and it's a famous story and they eat the forbidden fruit. And when they do so, they feel this real sense of shame. Um, and so they hide from God. They hide um, because they, they feel that they've done wrong. They have fallen down the steps of religion. And what does God do? God doesn't sit away, doesn't keep his distance and say like, okay, well, you guys have to figure it out. And when you figure it out, um, you guys can earn your way back in. No, God comes and the text says it comes, God comes looking for them and, and says, where are you? And he connects with them and he gives them hope and, tells, and gives them promises about how he's going to work to bring everything, to set everything right in the future. And, and so it's actually this moment of even, even as there's been a, um, uh, a break in the relationship between God and humanity, God is already moving towards humanity to, to fix it and to set it right and to restore that relationship. I think of a story of how the Hebrew people are slaves in Egypt. And it's the text says that God hears their cries and is moved to action to liberate them. And so we get the famous story of the 10 plagues and God setting the, the Israelites free from Egypt. And after, after they've been set free from Egypt, God wants to reassure them that, that he is with them. And so he, he instructs them to set up a tent in the middle of their in the middle of their camp. And so they call it a tabernacle, a dwelling place. And this is to symbolize uh, that this is the place where God lives, that God lives in a tent in amongst the people. God is not separate, he's somewhere, not somewhere else, but God is within the tent. And of course we read later in the Bible that God does not need tents, God does not need tabernacles in which to dwell, but symbolically he, he, he does this to, to, to let us know, to communicate to us that that he's not somewhere else, but he is actually right in the midst of the community. And then, of course, the Hebrew people, they don't always do the right thing. They often fall off the stairwell of religion. They often um, don't follow what we call, you know, the path to God. And every time God sends prophets to reach out, to come to them and remind them uh, that he still loves them, that he has good plans for them, that he's made promises to them, and that he wants to keep those promises and invites them to come back into relationship with him, to turn around, and not with a sense of like, well, you have to make your way here, but just to turn around and to embrace God who is already right there and present with them. And we see this in Jesus so clearly. So not only does Jesus come as, you know, as God in, you know, in human flesh, um, moving into the neighborhood. But when that concept becomes too much for powerful people and they have Jesus executed and, and reject the idea that Jesus could possibly be God as one of us, um, God does not, the story doesn't end there. God doesn't say, okay, well, you know, I tried, it's over and too bad. You know, I, I did my best and now you guys are on your own. No. The story goes that Jesus is resurrected. Death isn't even enough to keep God from us. And Jesus returns to his disciples. And the first thing he says to his disciples is, peace be with you. Which I think is powerful. This idea of being with, right? That the first thing Jesus offers is, peace be with you. The, the peace of God, the presence of God be with you. That God is with you. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be fearful of God. God is already with you. The peace of God is with you. And then Jesus, the story gets even more wild because then Jesus breathes on the disciples and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus knows that he's not always going to be around uh, in human form. 
no, no human being is ever around forever. But the Holy Spirit is kind of the way of talking about of God's presence um, that, that, that goes beyond human form and is available to everyone. And so Jesus breathes on the disciples and says, you know, receive the Holy Spirit. And the word spirit is the same as the word for breath. That, that there's this sense of you can just breathe God in. And this, this blows our minds because we realize that not only is God not at the top of the hill, not, as, not only is God not in the sky, not only is God just our neighbor who lives nearby, God actually is within us. So God is with us and within us and through the Spirit. And, and, and so even when we just breathe in, we can be aware of God's presence with us. Too often we think the, the Bible is a guide to help us find God in the sky. But the Bible is actually really the story of how God has been with us all along. I'm going to say that again. Too often we think that, you know, the Bible is a guide to help us get to God or the heavenly city or whatever divine thing we think of in the sky. And the Bible is really just the story of how God has been with us all along and is with us here and now. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Psalm 139 says, Is there any place I can go to avoid your spirit, to be out of your sight? If I climb to the sky, you're there. If I go underground, you're there. If I flew on morning's wings to the far western horizon, you'd find me in a minute. You're already there waiting. Romans 8.38 puts it this way, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the good news of the Jesus story. This is the good news of Christmas that sometimes we talk about, but we don't always really internalize that we are liberated from this narrative of God being in the sky and we having to climb the steps to get there. Now, the truth is that life often does, is like climbing a long set of steps, carrying a heavy burden. This is the experience that many of us have of, of suffering, of pain, of loss, anxiety, loneliness. We, you don't have to look very far right now to, to see that we are all struggling these days. We are all um, crawling and just doing our best to, to, to hang on and to make any forward momentum that we can to move, move forward in life. And so Peterson is right to say that that is what life often feels like. It is, it is a staircase that we are trying to climb, carrying a heavy burden. There is much suffering. There is much pain. But where Peterson gets it wrong and where Jesus offers a a hopeful alternative is not is is the realization that God is not at the top of the stairs waiting for us to make it but that God is actually with us taking every step of the journey on the stairs together that Jesus helps carry our burdens that he knows our pain he has experienced 
loss. He has experienced sadness. He's experienced anxiety. He, he has felt all the things that we feel. And so he enters into that with us and endures it with us. And so he celebrates the joys of life with us, but he also cries the tears of grief that we have as well. And so for me, this idea that God is not distant, but God is, has moved into the neighborhood, but even more so this idea that God is within us is extraordinary. It helps me to see that even the ordinary moments of life are, are extraordinary. That I don't, have to, um, I don't have to wait until later to um, see or experience the, um, the, the divine, but I can be aware in each moment. I can open myself up and, and be aware of God's presence at any given moment. And so I'm never alone. I'm never, um, I'm never without hope. Um, I'm never, even, even when I, I fall down the stairs, even when I begin to walk away from God, even, even when I purposefully am saying, no, I, I want to go this way, I, I give up on this, God makes that journey with us. God will even go with us on the pathway away from God. There's nothing we can do that will separate us from God's love. There's nowhere we can go where God is not. Because God is within us, and so God goes wherever we go. And that helps us to see other people differently. It helps us to see them recognizing that God is within them too. And so we have to, we, we, we are compelled to love them, to see them with dignity and treat them as human beings because God is within them, because God is with all of us. And so we can't really have enemies. Um, we can't hate our enemies because God is with them. And God can't be on our side because God is, on, is, is with everyone. And so it begins to shape our thinking in all sorts of helpful and interesting and life-giving ways. And I wonder how it does that for you. I wonder how you have felt distant from God in your life. How you have maybe felt like God is at the top of the hill or in the sky or behind a gate that you have to do something to get closer, you have to get his attention, that maybe God is not interested in just a regular person like you. Maybe, maybe, sure, God loves everyone, but is it, does he really love me? And the, the narrative of Jesus that he does, that God is, as you breathe in right now, God is in your breath, within you. What feelings does that elicit in you? What thoughts kick in? What, does that give you a sense of peace, a sense of hope? What happens there? And so I'm gonna close our time in this chat with a rereading the poem that I read at the beginning. And I want you to allow the words to sink in this time and allow God to speak to you through them as you breathe in and are aware of his spirit within you. The worst thing we ever did was put God in the sky, out of reach, pulling divinity from the leaf, sifting out the holy from our bones, insisting that God isn't 
bursting dazzlement, stripping the sacred from everywhere to put in a cloud man elsewhere, prying closeness from your heart. The worst thing we ever did was take the dance and the song out of prayer, made it sit up straight and cross its legs, removed it of rejoicing, wiped clean its hip sway, its questions, its ecstatic yowl, its tears. The worst thing we ever did is pretend God isn't the easiest thing in this universe, available to every soul in every breath.